You're listening to an audio sermon from Trinity Bible Chapel. For more information, please visit our website at trinitybiblechapel.ca. I'll finish up this series on the Ten Commandments today that we've been in since early April. And today we wrap it up and move on. And um, I'll begin reading in Exodus 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You are your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Please bow with me for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, how we thank you for your word. And we are grateful that you have revealed yourself to us through scripture. We are thankful for your law. We pray that today you would save sinners and that you would sanctify your elect. And we pray that you would anoint the hearing and preaching of your word the proper application would be made and that all would be pointed to the wonder of Jesus Christ in whose name we pray, amen. We're in the Ten Commandments and I, as I noted, the Ten Commandments, we've been in them since April and this is the last sermon in the series. The Ten Commandments are the natural law of God. They are the constitution of reality. So if you want to live naturally, and if you want to live in reality, you live in accordance with the Ten Commandments. This is how God designed you to live. And this is the natural way, this is the real way to live. 
We live in a world that is full of darkness, so it's like without the Ten Commandments, you're living in a room that's dark, there's no lights, there's no windows. You're walking around in the room, you're bumping into things, you're getting cut, you're tripping over things, you're bumping into people, you're getting bruised, bones are being broken, you don't know where to go. That's the world without God's law. You open God's law, you learn God's law, and then you, that means you turn the lights on. Now you can see how to live. You can see where to go. You can see where not to go. You can see what not to bump into. You can see what not to trip over. You can see what is the safe way to walk. That's God's law. Learning to live in God's law is like turning the lights on in the room. God's law, the Ten Commandments, are counselors along the way. They teach you. So if you listen... You'll have 10 counselors, more valuable than any counselor or therapist that you could ever pay money for. 10 counselors speaking into your hearts, telling you which way to go and which way not to go. The 10 commandments, God's natural law, the constitution of reality, how to live naturally, how to live in reality, light in the darkness, counselors along the way. The 10 commandments can do many things. And one of the things that they cannot do, however, they cannot save you. You will not find forgiveness for sins in the Ten Commandments. It's not there. It's cold, hard law. Inflexible. The problem's not with the Ten Commandments. The problem is with you and with me. They teach us that we're sinners, but they will not forgive us. They're unforgiving. And the only way to find forgiveness for sins is in Jesus Christ. So, if you come to the Ten Commandments, you feel conviction for sin. They search around. They poke around in your heart. They put the finger on the sore spot and apply pressure. What you need to go do is run to Jesus Christ, where you will surely find forgiveness. He'll remove your sins from you. The Ten Commandments don't forgive you. They show you you're a sinner, but only Christ can forgive you. Last week, we looked at the Tenth Commandment, you shall not covet. I noted that the Tenth Commandment teaches us about the mother of all sins. The mother of all sins. Covetousness. Covetousness is the mother of all sins. You can't sin without first coveting. The first sin is desire, evil desire. And then the desire gives birth to the action. The desire is covetousness. Desiring what you should not have. Covetousness. You shall not covet. The mother of all sins. And is the eighth commandment communicates to us that God is Lord of our property. And the seventh commandment communicates to us that God is Lord of marriage and sexuality. Even the fourth commandment communicates to us that God is Lord of time. The tenth commandment communicates to us that God is Lord of our hearts. He owns our hearts, and our hearts belong to him. So, we should hate what he hates, and we should love what he loves. 
That's what the 10th commandment teaches us. Wilhelm S. A. Brackle said, that which gives birth to sin is sin itself. And covetousness is what gives birth to sin. Therefore, covetousness is sin itself. It's the first sin. It's the mother of all sins. Any sin that enters the room comes in piggybacking on covetousness's shoulders. That was last week. We looked at the 10th commandment. Today I will conclude my series on the 10 commandments, which I began in April. And I hope and trust and pray that it has shaped your thinking and shaped your hearts, even as it has mine, so that you can see the Ten Commandments is foundational to all of life. I pray, and it has been my desire, that, that God is using this series on the Ten Commandments to help you shape and establish patterns and habits in your thoughts and your life and how you've structured your time and your relationships personally. For me, it's been a joy to bring to you some of the treasures that I have found in the study of God's law. It's a topic that I personally began studying in detail in about 2017, 2018, when I started to preach the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, which forced me to clarify my thinking on God's law and drove me to investigate it further. And since then, I have spent hours studying it. And so it's about five or six years of labor that I've attempted to bring forward to you. And I do hope that it has been helpful to you, as my own personal study has been helpful to me. Now, we've had many new faces in church over these last few years, and many new people have been saved. And so part of my hope in teaching the Ten Commandments is to get everyone on the same page as to what the Christian life actually looks like. And the Ten Commandments are foundational to the Christian life. And so today we conclude all of that. And well, today I will review some of what I have already taught in this series. I do want to exposit the epilogue in verses 18 through 21. It's this little section at the end of the Ten Commandments that I have been reading every Sunday that kind of mystifies you as you read about these trumpets and this lightning and this darkness and this smoke and people begging that they will stop hearing the voice of God in the Ten Commandments. Let me just read that section one more time and then I'll give you the outline of how I'm going to work through today's sermon. Verse 18 says, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet... And the mountains smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off. And said to Moses, you speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you. The fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. So this is where I'm going to focus today, as we wrap this up. And I am going to divide this, I've divided this into three headings. One, the terror of the law. Two, the purpose of the law. Three, the Christ of the law. Three headings, the terror of the law, the purpose of the law, the Christ of the law. 
start with the terror of the law. My first point. The giving of the law was terrifying. It struck terror into the people's hearts. And I suspect that as you've sat under the preaching of God's law, that there has been times, and I hope many times, as it has been the case for me, where the law itself has brought a terrifying conviction to your heart that's driven you to Christ. Well, the original proclamation of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 was a terrifying encounter. Let's examine the optics of the entire scene were terrifying. Look at verse 18 as we consider how terrifying it was. Now, when all the people saw the thunder, now, you know, you read that, well, they didn't see thunder. You hear thunder, right? So we're talking about the senses when we use this word saw. They saw the thunder. They sensed it. Maybe they saw the rattling of the thunder. I don't know. But they saw the thunder. They certainly saw the flashes of the lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. These, this was the optics. The senses. The pageantry that God used to communicate his law when he first delivered it. Claps of thunder, flashes of lightning, billows of smoke, blasts of trumpets. The senses, the optics that God used. And it's important when we come to verse 18, you read verse 18, and you read it following the 10th commandment, which was in verse 17, and you say, well, that's what happened when the 10th commandments were finished. Lightning, thunder, smoke, trumpets. That's what happened when the 10 commandments were finished being delivered. No, no. That's not what happened at the finishing of the delivering of the Ten Commandments. What is being communicated in the text is this is what happened for the duration of the communication of the Ten Commandments. As the Ten Commandments were being communicated, as God communicated the Ten Commandments, He communicated them, yes, with His audible voice, which we shall learn about in a moment, but He communicated them accented by flashes of lightning, by claps of thunder, by blasts of the trumpet, and by billows of smoke. All at once. Terrifying. The Italian Jew who commented on this text, Umberto Casuto, said, the beginning of verse 18 shows that this verse does not describe an action that took place subsequent to the events above, but something that happened simultaneously. The way the grammar is structured in the Hebrew language. This is what happened simultaneous to the delivering of the law. Claps of thunder, flashes of lightning, blasts of trumpets, billows of smoke. Is the law is being delivered. That's how it happened. A dark, stormy manifestation of God's presence. And so just as it's stated here in verse 18, as I just read, 
You look back in your Bibles to Exodus 19, verse 16 through 20, and you see the same thing, before the law is delivered. So have a look. Exodus 19, verse 16, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. You see that? What does it describe before the giving of the law? Claps of thunder, flashes of lightning, blasts of trumpets, billows of smoke. This was the scene. This was the scene as the law was about to be delivered, and this is the scene after the law was delivered, and this is the scene as the law was being delivered. Claps of thunder, flashes of lightning, blasts of trumpets, and billows of smoke. The optics, terrifying pageantry delivered by God. One vein, this scene actually reminds us of the Garden of Eden. What is man's last memory of the Garden of Eden? Well, it's flashes of lightning and billows of smoke. Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, as man is kicked out of Eden, this is the description of the scene. You've got to remember that Eden is on a mountain. We know that. And in Genesis 3, verse 24, it says, He drove out the man... And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword. What's a flaming sword that looks a lot like lightning that turned away every way to guard the way to the tree of life? And so this is reminiscent of Eden. At least what Eden looks like from our vantage point because it's blocked by flaming swords. And so we have here Mount Sinai where the law of God is being delivered and the law of God in Mount Sinai is Blocked by the flaming swords of lightning, billows of smoke, blowings of trumpet, claps of thunder. Man was driven out of Eden, and Eden was on a mountain, and Eden was protected by flaming swords. And now what God has done is God is revisiting man. And he's showing man what lies behind the curtain to Eden. The gate to Eden. What has man missed out on by not being in Eden? And God speaks from behind the veil, and he delivers the Ten Commandments and says, this is what the, Lord, the world could have been. This is the way the world is supposed to be. This is what you missed out on. No murder, no adultery, no blasphemy, no theft, no violence, no covetousness, only complete contentment and thankfulness. With lots of fruitfulness, plenty of food, 
and joyful prosperity. That's Eden. So if you've, as you've heard me preach on the law of God, and even as I preached on the Eighth Commandment, and I talked about the necessity of multiplying wealth, or you preach on the Seventh Commandment, and you talk about marriage and sexuality and having children and fruitfulness, or you preach on the Second Commandment and the worship of God, and, or the Fourth Commandment, the rest of God, the First Commandment, loyalty to God, the Tenth Commandment, contentment and joyfulness and thankfulness in God. And you put all of these ingredients together and everybody lives by this and everybody operates this way. What do you have? You have Eden. And so God speaks from behind the veil and he revisits man from Eden with the law of nature to tell him how life should be lived. And it is a terrifying sight. Billows of smoke, flashes of fire, claps of thunder, and blasts of the trumpet. Why is it terrifying? Well, because it's unfamiliar. It's, it's like somebody who's lived in darkness in a swampy, damp cave their whole life. For decades, they only know darkness and dampness. And suddenly they arrive on a sunlit beach, surrounded by one side beach, the other side vegetation. It would be terrifying. My life doesn't add up to that. But yet that's the way it's supposed to be. And so the optics were terrifying. But not only were the optics terrifying, the voice of God was terrifying for them. And we know that the Ten Commandments were delivered how? They were delivered with God's voice. He spoke to them audibly. So Deuteronomy 4, verse 11 and 13 says, for example... And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. And he, God, declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. The voice of God was terrifying to them. Matthew Henry explains this well where he says, Never was anything delivered with such awful pomp. Every word was accented. And every sentence paused with thunder and lightning, much louder and brighter, no doubt, than ordinary. How about that? Perfect accentuation of every word. Perfect diction of every word. Every word spoken with power, with the clearest voice that you could imagine. And then every phrase accented with the flashes of lightning, the claps of thunder, the billows of smoke. And the blasts of the trumpet. The voice of God was terrifying for them. And we see the terror in their reaction. We see the terror in the optics, we see the terror in the voice of God, and we see the terror in their reaction. 
Look at their reaction in verse 18. We read the first half of verse 18, but look at their reaction. This is at the end of it, second half of the verse. The people were afraid. They weren't just afraid, but they trembled. So they, the vigor of life was sucked out of them because of the fear. And the fear led to physical convulsions, shaking, trembling. And then I want to emphasize what it says after the fear and the physical convulsions, they stood far off, just like Adam and Eve did when they heard the voice of God in the garden. They stood far off. It brought conviction of sin. But as I emphasize the fact that they stood far off, I want to emphasize the fact that they began very near. Chapter 19, verse 17 tells us how they began when the law of God was first delivered. It says in 19, verse 17, Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. No, Moses had established limits at the base of the mountain. In verse 12 in chapter 19, And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. So Moses developed a perimeter around the mountain and brought the people right up to the very edge of the perimeter in chapter 19. And they wanted a nearer seat. They wanted to move beyond the perimeter to the mountain itself. So Moses had to warn them away, ward them off. Exodus 19, verse 21, And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, to look, and many of them perish. You almost have this idea that they've gathered at the base of the mountain, all around the mountain, and they're clamoring at the gates to see God. And God tells Moses to get down there and tell them to back off. They so want to see him. And just to give you a little bit of an idea of how many people there were, Exodus chapter 12, verse 37 says that there were 600,000 men beside women and children. So that's more people than live in the regional municipality of Waterloo that had gathered around this mountain at the base of this mountain, clamoring to see God in the mountain. And then at the flashes of lightning, the claps of thunder, the billows of smoke, and the blasts of the trumpet, and finally with the punctuation and diction and clarity of God's voice at the delivering of the law, what does it tell us in verse 20, or in verse 18 at the end of it? They stood far off. Get the picture? It begins with them clamoring to get in, but as the voice of God is now heard and it's audible and it has been going on, it ends with them running away. Oh, we don't want to get too close. In fact, we want to be removed. Some of the Jewish rabbis have speculated that the camp itself had about a 12-mile perimeter. 
And so they could have run as far as 12 miles to the perimeter of the camp so that they were clamoring to get in and then now they're clamoring to get out. Speculation. But it should give you the picture of what has happened with these people in their change of mood. And some of you, I've watched as I've preached on the Ten Commandments, have winced from time to time as I've mentioned certain things. Some people have even left mid-sermon. I've never seen them come back to church as I've preached on the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments are designed by God to make you uncomfortable because they tell you what you should be and what you are not. They bring that level of conviction. This is the point. But when you look into the Ten Commandments, you imagine that you're in this crowd and you start to see the perfection of God on display coming through the fire and the smoke and the trumpets and the claps of lightning. And all of a sudden you see, I don't measure up. And you know that the penalty for law breaking is death and hell. Just like Adam and Eve in the garden, they run and hide from God. They don't want to be near him. Because being near him brings conviction. Hebrews 12 verse 21 tells us even, Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. So this, this is the terror of it. I've tried to describe to you the optics, the voice of God, the reaction. And then in verse 19, you see what they say in their reaction. Look at it. It said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. They beg for mercy. We don't want to hear God anymore because we might die if we hear him. The entire scene is too much for them. The weight of the law is crushing as they realize their own sinfulness under the terror of the law. Now, I've read about the preaching of George Whitfield in 18th century England and colonial United States. And he said that when he would preach, he would preach on the law. And on God's mighty judgments. And in preaching on the law and in preaching on God's mighty judgments, it would become so heavy for the people that the people would cry out, what must I do to be saved? What must I do? And so many approach God as if he's some marshmallow man in the sky. As if he's the big teddy bear. The cosmic teddy bear. But when you're revealed, when the real and true God reveals himself to you, you're not revealed, you're not perceiving a cosmic teddy bear. What you're perceiving is infinite holiness burning down on you. To the point where you need to escape the light of his presence. Because in that instant, you realize how sinful you are. And you melt. I can't take it anymore, they cry. Get me away. Oh Moses, please, please, you talk to him, but not us. 
It's, it's glory upon glory upon glory. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The entire scene, the words, the smoke, the sights strike terror into their hearts as they've learned what the standard is and they learn that they don't live up to the standard. Has that been your experience? As you've encountered this holy God who reveals himself in the Ten Commandments? You don't live up to him. You don't live up to his standard, to his righteousness. And so, what you need is Jesus Christ, the Savior. I mean, you looked at the first commandment, and you find that God demands absolute loyalty. You look at the second commandment, and you, dem- and you find that God demands that he controls his own worship. It must be designed by him. You look at the third commandment and you find out that his name is to be hallowed. You look at the fourth commandment and you find out that he is Lord over time. He demands your time. You, find the, you look at the fifth commandment and you find that he's the Lord over the family. You find the sixth commandment, he's Lord over life. The seventh commandment, he's Lord over marriage and sexuality. The eighth commandment, he's Lord over property. The ninth commandment, he's Lord over truth. And then the tenth commandment, he's Lord of your heart. And you look at this and you say, is he? Or when when I start to preach this way, do you feel like there's something invasive going on? Yeah, he can have this, but he can't have that. And, And what really is happening when you feel like Something is invading your personal space when the law of God is being preached on a particular issue. It's not as if that's invading your personal space. It's as if you've tried to invade God's space and you're saying, back off, God. Because he claims lordship over everything. And the minute there's something that you won't give him is the minute that you realize that you have invaded his space. And so I suspect that made the Hebrews uncomfortable as it has likely made you uncomfortable and me. Have you felt that conviction? Have you seen the law of God? It's terrifying. It's a terrifying conviction as you behold the holiness of God and his law. But not only do we see the terror of the law, but we see the purpose of the law. In our text at hand, we see the purpose. And the purpose is what? Well, one, it's to restrain you. And two, it's to test you. Restrain you from evil and to show you who you are by testing you. This is who you are. What does the test do? You write a math test, what does the math test do? It tells you who you are mathematically. You write a history test, it tells you about your knowledge of history. You look at the Ten Commandments, it tells you who you are in comparison to God's holiness. How does you add up? But before I get into the restraining power and the testing power of God's law, we see this very interesting statement in verse 20 where it says, verse 20, it says, Moses said to the people, do not fear. So he says, do not fear. For God has come to test you that the fear of him might be before you. Isn't that strange? Do not fear. 
so that his fear can be before you. Don't fear, but do fear. What's that mean? Well, I suspect there's a few different things going on. One is, is the last time that they saw thunder and lightning and billows of smoke wasn't too long ago. They saw thunder and lightning and billows of smoke when God's wrathful anger rained down upon the Egyptians. And so now they're exposed to thunder and lightning and billows of smoke at Mount Sinai. And you sit there and you wonder, well, maybe they thought that God was going to do to them just as he did to the Egyptians. And so Moses is saying, look, that's not the case here. And then in saying that the fear of him may be before you, well, this is a reminder of the fact that they need to have a holy reverence for God. The law brings a conscientious understanding of holiness. And it points to judgment, so much so that it restrains sin. I mean, if you think that the billows of smoke and the claps of thunder and the flashes of lightning and the blast of the trumpet at the giving of the law at Sinai is terrifying. Wait till you see the billows of smoke and the claps of thunder and the flashes of lightning and the blasts of the trumpet at the coming of Christ. So it points to judgment. So in one sense, don't fear. It's not judgment yet, but... You should fear because this is bringing a conscientious understanding of a judgment. Matthew Henry commented on it, helpfully saying, Thunder and lightning constituted one of the plagues of Egypt. But Moses would not have them think that they were sent to them on the same errand on which they were sent to the Egyptians. But he goes on, we must always have in our mind a reverence of God's majesty, a dread of his displeasure, and an obedient regard to his sovereign authority over us. It brings terror to the conscience. As Matthew Poole said, he said, maybe now and ever before our eyes and in your memories is an effectual preservative from sin. It restrains sin. There used to be a conscientious understanding within Western civilization that the purpose of the law was to restrain sin. Now you go to the Ministry of Justice and our government, and what is it? It's to rehabilitate criminals. How's that working out? More crime or less crime? The purpose of the law is to restrain sin. There was a generation that understood what breaking the law meant because they saw the lawmakers with ropes around their breakers with ropes around their neck. You want to be a rapist and a murderer? Look at the guy hanging from the scaffolding. That's what happens to those people. Restraining grace in society. That's what the law is supposed to do. To be a restraint. It puts the brakes on sin. And not only does it restrain, but it tests. Verse 20, Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you. It shows you who you are. Now, we've raised in a generation where you've heard Disney so many times tell you that if you really want to know who you are, look deep inside yourself, children. That's who you are. 
look deep inside. And so this is, this is how we think we know who we are. But no. If you want to know who you are, look to God. And you'll find out what you should be and what you are not. When you look into the law of God, what you see in the law of God is who you should be and who you are not. And there's your measure. There's your test. How do you measure up to what you should be? Because now you know what you are not. The law has a design. It produces in you a holy fear of God. It restrains sin because there is a terrifying grace to this. And it shows you who you are by showing you what you should be and what you are not in comparison to what you should be. In other words, it depletes you. I've said it many times, the law can do a lot of things. It can terrify you. It can restrain you. It can test you. But there's one thing it cannot do. It can't save you. It can't. And that's why I want to close with the Christ of the law. I've spoken of the terror of the law. I've spoken of the purpose of the law. But now talk about, shall we, the Christ of the law. The law strikes terror and it points to judgment. And if you think the scene at Sinai was terrifying, just wait for the second coming of Christ. The law restrains, the law tests, it shows you and me, it shows us who we are. But the law doesn't save, only Christ can do that. You see, he satisfied all of its demands. So you'll think about all those commandments. Commandments 1 through 10. And you remember the principles that we learned as we looked at the commandments? What the commandment forbids, it demands the opposite duty. Right? So, if the commandment forbids idolatry, you shall not make unto yourself a graven image. You shall not bow down yourself to it. What does the commandment demand? It forbids idolatry. It demands that you worship him properly. Right? The commandment forbids adultery. Okay? If it forbids adultery, what does it command? It commands that you love your wife and love your husband. Right? The commandment forbids bearing false witness against your neighbor. If the commandment forbids bearing false witness against your neighbor, what does it demand? Well, it demands that you live within the context of truth and you protect your neighbor's good reputation. What the commandment forbids, it demands the opposite good. And what the commandment demands, it forbids the opposite evil. Right? Demands that you honor the Sabbath. It forbids, therefore, that you not dishonor the Sabbath. 
Don't work on a Sabbath. Forbids that. Okay, it commands that you honor your parents. So what does it forbid? You don't dishonor your parents. You don't disrespect your parents or curse your parents or swear at your parents or speak ill of your parents, unnecessarily so. But honoring them is so much more than not speaking ill of them. So what the commandment demands, the commandment the commandment prohibits the opposite, and when it prohibits, it commands the opposite. And, and you hear all of that, and then you, think about, then you think about the fact that every commandment represents all these different categories. So that's the, the category heading, but then there's all these subcategories. The commandment is, you shall not commit adultery, but there's all these subcategories of sexual immorality. Right? You shall not look at porn. You shall not have sex outside of marriage. You shall not be homosexual. All of those are under that category. Right? And then, not only that, but the commandments regulate the heart. So it's not just enough to forbid and command external actions, but it demands that your heart shares the same affection as the spirit behind the law. So that... You want to protect God's name from being taken in vain. That's your desire. You desire to worship God in accordance with the second commandment. In accordance with the tenth commandment, you do not covet, but instead of coveting, you are full of gratitude and contentment to God. It controls the affections of your heart. And you hear all of that, and you say, I don't add up to that. And then you look at to one man who does. Jesus Christ upheld it all. Every one of them. And you say, that's so overwhelming. Every commandment has subcategories that must be upheld. What every commandment demands, it prohibits the opposite good. What it prohibits, it demands the opposite, or it, it prohibits the opposite bad. And whatever it prohibits, it demands the opposite good. It controls the affections. And you look at Jesus Christ, he upheld all of it. You know what, I bet you everyone here who's listened to this entire sermon, every one of you, I bet you there has been times throughout the sermon where you have felt conviction for sin, guaranteed. Do you know that Jesus Christ could have sat through every one of those sermons and never honestly felt conviction? Ever. Because he obeys it perfectly. You could never preach a sermon on the Ten Commandments to Jesus Christ where he would feel conviction. Because he hears the Ten Commandments and he says, he's the only one that can say it. He says, that's me. I did it. The Christ of the law. The perfect law keeper fully obeyed the prohibitions fully obeyed the duties, fully controlled the affections of his heart, and all the subcategories. He's wonderful, is what I'm trying to say. Wonderful. Perfectly wonderful. And yet, with him being perfectly wonderful, he satisfied not just the demands of the law, but the just penalty of the law. The Bible says the soul that sins must die. 
For what I said, the law is a restraining grace because you should be able to look at the criminal hanging from the scaffolding and say, I don't want to be like that. Because the criminal deserves to die. And yet Jesus died despite the fact that he fulfilled the law's demands. He also fulfilled its penalties. Because you look at Jesus Christ... And you know there's a righteous man, but yet you look at Jesus Christ, the righteous man, and as he hangs on the cross, you can say, because he is bearing the sins of his people in his body, you can say, there's the thief. That's how God sees it. There's the adulterer. There's the fornicator on the cross. There's the blasphemer. There's the one that worships statues. Right there on the cross. The Sabbath breaker. That's him. You say, well, he didn't break the Sabbath. He didn't bow down to statues. He worshiped God perfectly. He never committed sexual immorality. How could you say that? Because he is the substitutionary atonement for us sinners. So that he bore our sins in his own body on the cross. He died the death of a blasphemer. He died the death of an adulterer. He died the death of a thief. He died the death of a murderer. He died the death of a Sabbath breaker. Died a... The death of every sinner that ever lived for every sin that ever could be committed. All the prohibitions, all the demands, all the subcategories, all the affections of the heart that are wrong. And he died for that. He satisfied the demands of the law and he satisfied the penalties of the law. So that you and I look to Jesus... And all of the demands of the law are satisfied on our behalf. And all of the penalties of the law are satisfied on our behalf. Your salvation is not found in your law keeping. Because you haven't done it. Your salvation is found in Jesus Christ. So you look to him and you receive perfect redemption, perfect righteousness, perfect forgiveness. What other gospel is like that? Who else offers you that? What a beautiful, wonderful, hopeful picture that literally a God-damned humanity can find complete forgiveness of sins for our law-breaking. He satisfied the demands of the law and he satisfied the penalties of the law. So we've seen the terror of the law, the purpose of the law, and the Christ of the law. Have you embraced the Christ of the law because you have no other hope? Well, they ran away from the law, but to where did they run? Adam and Eve ran away from God, but to where did they run? They covered themselves in fig leaves. You think they could hide behind the fig leaves? What are you hiding from? And what are you hiding behind? 
Your only hope is to hide behind Christ, in Christ, to cast yourself upon Christ, to find forgiveness in Christ and mercy in Christ and redemption in Christ. The one who fully turned away the wrath of God because he fully satisfied the wrath of God. The one who fully satisfied the demands of God because he fully satisfied the penalties of God. All in the law. Have you come to the Christ of the law? I haven't asked you whether you've kept the law. I already know the answer to that for everyone here. You haven't. And you should be terrified of the law. Because of what it tells you about yourself and about God. But above and beyond all of that, has the law served this final purpose in you? Has it driven you to the Christ of the law? The one who satisfied its demands and its penalties all at once. Won't you come to Jesus Christ today if you haven't already? Won't you believe in him and cast yourself upon him for mercy? There's still room and there's still time for you. Let's have prayer together. Father in heaven, we thank you for Christ, our Savior, the one who satisfied fully the demands and the justice of the law. Forgive us our sins, and if there's anyone here today who is outside of Christ, I pray that he or she would believe in him. And come home to Jesus for mercy and grace, to the only place where we can find hope, in Jesus Christ himself. And it's in his name that we pray, amen.